Let's turn again to the Bible, 2 Samuel, and the chapter 16. I said this morning, my intention is to try to cover, and again, this chapter. These sections come at us one after the other in a pretty large bulk of historical narrative. And so we need the Lord's help to consider it carefully and to see well, in what way it may apply to your hearts again tonight. So let's bow together. Please encourage you all. Seek the Lord at uh, this time. Ask that God would have a word uh, for your own soul. Eternal God, we thank you for the time of worship, even the teaching and the admonishing of one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The admonition, O Lord, that in all of our ways we must consider Jesus. We must fix our eyes upon the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray for grace even tonight as we would uh, consider this particular narrative. May our hearts be drawn out to Christ Jesus. May we see him as he is revealed in all the scriptures. And may we understand what it is to walk by faith. What it is to serve the true king. In times when the king is not popular, give us grace and help. And again, may our loyalty be to Christ tonight. We pray for those again whose hearts are not right with thee, work in their souls. Teach them, O Lord, truth tonight and open their hearts to embrace the gospel. O Heavenly Father, we look to thee. Grant us all grace, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I'm not, uh, not looking for sympathy, uh, but I was heartened, said to our brother Jim in the room next door, I was heartened by his prayer uh, before the service tonight, where he prayed that we would know help in this difficult passage. The story is pretty straightforward. The question is, what do you do with it? And this week, I certainly find myself at various times going so far along a certain thought, and then I find myself confronted with a brick wall. And realizing that brick wall probably indicated that it wasn't the right tracks, I turned round again and started over again. You see, some of these narratives, they are difficult. Not necessarily to understand what's happening, but to understand, well, why has God preserved this in His Word all of these years in such a way that they're intended to benefit us today? Where do we apply this? How do we apply it? You take this particular chapter at times you see glimpses of Christ and David, but other times you find a man that is inconsistent and unwise. So where do you go with that one? Well, let me give you a little bit of my own thought processes, and it may help you when you come to these portions in your own devotions. It's always good to take a step back and ask yourself the very simple question, well, what's actually happening here? Well, we know the story. David is leaving Jerusalem. Well, why is he leaving Jerusalem? Well, he's leaving Jerusalem because of the rebellion of his son Absalom, who's seeking to usurp his place and take the throne. He's leaving his homeland. Just an interesting point of geography, the little reference there in chapter 16, verse 1, David was a little past the top of the hill, is reckoned by the Bible geographers as an indication that David is leaving, again, the Mount of Olives, the mount there referenced in verse number 32 of chapter 16. And from that, he's entering the territory of Saul, the Benjamites, the area where Saul was popular, and Saul came out of that area. Hence, you get the reference here to Ziba and Shimei. And so he's leaving Jerusalem. He's on a pathway of trouble and difficulty. And as such, 
Undoubtedly, this chapter marks a time of personal loss and trouble. These were not easy times for David, and we'll see that later on tonight again. But it's also a time of trouble and problems in the true kingdom of God. David, again, is the rightful king, and Absalom is a usurper. And so as you look at this chapter, you're seeing trouble for the king and the kingdom. Chapter 15, we saw the loyalty of some in that chapter. And there were three friends who were determined to be loyal to David and seek to bring about David's recovery in the city. And then in chapter 16, we now find these three enemies. I say three, there are four, but the last two work together. And that is, of course, Ahithophel and Absalom. You've Seba acting as a deceiver. You say, well, is he really an enemy? Well, I trust that within a few minutes you'll realize he is indeed an enemy of the cause of David. You've Shimei, very clearly an enemy of David, cursing him, kicking stones at him, and all manner of other things. And then you've Absalom in his debauchery and in his ungodliness, seeking to humiliate David. Chapter 15, loyalty. Chapter 16, hostility. And so I worked these things through in my mind and and again, I just came to the idea that what you're seeing here is certainly a time of trouble. Personal trouble for David and trouble for the kingdom. I want to look at this chapter from those two perspectives, the two angles, two approaches. First of all, to see in this what it looks like to see trouble for the king in the kingdom. And then secondly, briefly, to look at the matter of David's personal trouble at this time. So let's think of this first of all from the kingdom perspective, from the perspective of the kingdom that God himself has anointed and ordained. David is the anointed rightful king. Absalom is not. That's fact. He has no right to do what he's done, and whilst he's in the sovereign purpose of God, we understand that, he himself is a usurper to the throne. And so what you see in chapter 16, you see, you see certain responses to the rightful anointed king. How do these three individuals respond to David? One responds in deception, Ziba. Another responds in open aggression, Shimei. And the third responds in insurrection, seeking to overthrow in a very blatant manner, to overthrow the kingdom. Again, I say, all of this is under God's sovereign control. We know back to the time after David's sin with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah, that God is going to bring these things upon the kingdom. None of this is happening as a surprise to God. But it is still at the same time actions that these men are held accountable for. And as the story continues, you see that reality. All three of these men are held accountable for their actions. It's under God's sovereign control. But as it is opposition to the true kingdom... We are also therefore seeing the agency of the devil in opposing the kingdom of God. There are only two kingdoms in this world. The Lord's kingdom and the devil's kingdom. And in this section we see that David is representing the true kingdom of God. And false kingdoms are under the devil's influence. And so what you're seeing here I believe is a pattern 
that we can learn about the devil's attacks on the church. It's, it's a picture, it's again typical in the idea of being types of what we might see developed. The devil's devices don't change. The tactics are the same in every generation. He seeks to overthrow the kingdom in various ways. And so as you see these three incidents, you should learn, understand, and pray. You should understand this is what the devil does in every generation. And therefore, we should earnestly pray for Christ to preserve his own church. So let's think of these three individuals one after the other. First of all, the issue of deception. Verse 1, we find Zeba coming with these supplies, bread and raisins and fruits and wine. He comes with supplies for those who are traveling. And David is curious and asks the obvious question, what are you doing? What are the, what's the reason for these particular gifts? And Zeba gives the answer. He talks about the necessity and whilst the quantities here are significant, they're not going to preserve this ban for very long. But they are apparently tokens of good because Zeba apparently offers allegiance to the king. Verse number five, or verse number four, he ends, I humbly beseech thee that I might find grace in thy sight, my lord, O king. There's the profession of allegiance to David. David asked the story, where is thy master's son? Now you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 9, you will see, again, as you've mentioned there, and of course, 2 Samuel 9, we have the account of David seeking to bring kindness upon the house of Jonathan. And Ziba is called, verse 2, there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. He's a Loyalist to Saul, but he's part of that household. He gives the word regarding Mephibosheth. And in chapter 9, there are provisions made that Ziba would look after the welfare of Mephibosheth. And so David rightly asks the question, where is Mephibosheth? He refers to him as his master's son, verse number 3. But it is a reference to Mephibosheth, who's mentioned, of course, directly, verse 1 and verse 4. Now here... We're going to come back to this. Okay, we'll come back to this later on. Because when you get to 2 Samuel 19, you see that Ziba has spun a lie. He's not true here. Because what he does, he bears false witness against Mephibosheth by suggesting that Mephibosheth stays at Jerusalem in the presumption that the kingdom will return to his father. Again, I am so slow to to judge Bible characters unfairly. But that David would take that account, I do not understand. Absalom has usurped the throne here. There's no same prospect of Saul's son to be back onto the throne. Why would he believe this? But he does. Ziba is certainly guilty of bearing false witness. Mephibosheth is treated unkindly in light of this. And we're going to go back to how we handle that sort of situation. So David makes this rash judgment. Verse 4, Behold, thine are all that pertains unto Mephibosheth. And he essentially has given Ziba all that belongs to Mephibosheth. It's a very rash judgment. 
And so when you compare that with what we see later on in 2 Samuel 19, when the truth comes out, I think we are right to make the assessment that Ziba here is deceptively seeking to promote himself in the eyes of David for his own personal gain. He's a lying loyalist. His desire is to appear loyal to David, but when David returns to Jerusalem, Ziba is very much on Absalom's side, and Mephibosheth is very much loyal to David. And so what you're seeing here again is an individual who's alleging loyalty to the king, but it's all for his own personal advance and gain. The devil delights to have false sons in her peel. We sang at him last Lord's Day. The church is one foundation. There is a reference to false sons in her peel. In the dominion of the church, there are those who are false. And the devil has people who are false in the church. And that's dangerous. It brings harm to the work of God. It brings division. So you get division between Mephibosheth and David and there's a rendering in the kingdom. And the devil has brought this about. Again, I'm not making this up in terms of some desire to bring a lesson from 2 Samuel 16 because we see the very same thing in the New Testament. Turn across to Acts chapter 5, please. I'm going to show you this again. My desire is to show you this in all three of these instances that what we're seeing here is, is indeed the devil's pattern. One of the first accounts we have of deception in the church is the matter of Ananias and Sapphira. They follow Barnabas' example. Verse number 36 of chapter 4, Barnabas had land and he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But what happens with Ananias and Sapphira, as you will remember, is that they bring their possessions, but they keep part of that back. Now that in itself is not wrong, that's not the issue. But the issue was they were deceptively trying to give the impression that they were something that they were not. It's deception in the church. And it's deception in the church that has the potential to bring division and destruction. And what does Peter say to Ananias, verse number 3? Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart? to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. We're not told directly what the motivation was for Ananias and Sapphira, but you certainly see that their desire was to have the praise of the apostolic band at the same time as keeping something to themselves. Deception. Then you go across to chapter 8. In chapter 8 we find yet another account of deception. This time it is a certain man called Simon. Simon is baptized, professes faith. But as you work your way down through the passage, Peter makes it clear, verse number 21, that his heart is not right in the sight of God. And what's the issue with Simon? Well, the issue with Simon again is that he sees the power of the Holy Ghost. And so he says in verse number 18, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. 
Peter says, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. This idea that he would have some prominence, a role, a gift, opened and revealed his heart. He's shown to not be sincere and right, deception again in the work of God. These are signal events in the early church, indicating again that whilst the church is knowing blessing and it's growing, the devil would seek to infiltrate, bringing deception and destruction upon the work. One last reference to this, and that is 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, again, regarding the false teachers that we've thought about in 2 Timothy quite a lot. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 5. There are these men, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. And the idea of gain being godliness was the idea that they thought they could benefit in themselves, likely financially, by pursuing this deceptive form of godliness. Putting on a show of godliness so that they can gain themselves, but it's not sincere, it's not genuine. And First and Second Timothy makes it very, very clear that such deception is dangerous. Zebas keep on popping up from time to time in the history of the church, and there is damage. There are those who come into the church, and they seek to gain financially or socially or emotionally. They, they seek to gain in some fashion, and they put on a hypocritical show of religion for their own interests and for their own gain. And that is damaging to the work of God. If that is a description of you tonight, may God expose your hearts and cause you to repent. That if you're in this church and part of this church because you want to gain in some fashion for yourself, then may God help you to see the error of your ways. See, what is the opposite of this? It is love and loyalty to our rightful king shown in selfless service. That we gladly serve in the church for His sake, for the honor of His name. And though our name die, may His name be glorified. And as John the Baptist would say, that He would increase and John would decrease. You think again of Philippians chapter 2, let nothing be done through strife or being glory, but in lowliness of mind that each esteem other better than themselves, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is one of the devil's devices. Secondly, though, we turn to Shimei, back to Second uh, Samuel 16. And here we find a man who is very open in his aggression. His hatred for David, verse number 5, tells us, There comes a man of the family of the house of Saul. He's been loyal to Saul all these years. And David now comes, and as Shimei takes the opportunity, David's leaving in humiliation from Jerusalem. Now's my opportunity to bring curses upon the head of David. And again, such is violation of the very word of God. Back in Exodus chapter 22, there is clear instruction that they were not to curse the ruler. Exodus 22 I'll just read it for you now. Exodus 22 and the verse number 28. Thou shalt not revile the gods, it's referring to authorities, nor curse the ruler of thy people. 
Shimei is clearly acting against the will of God, and he is and will be held accountable going forward. But he's loyal to Saul, and he accuses David of being a bloody man, a man of Belial, an ungodly man, a wretched man, and he blames David for the blood of the house of Saul. He accuses David, saying, you're the one, you're to blame for the death of men like Abner and Ishbosheth and all of these Saul men. You're guilty of their blood, David. He's loyal to Saul. You see, in the true kingdom of Christ, those loyal to Satan hate the Lord. And that hatred exposed itself at this time in Shimei's life. Do we see such things today? Of course we do. Well, let's think about it first of all in the New Testament church. Turn to John chapter 8. Again, my agenda tonight is to show you that these things are coming through the work of the devil. The devil is the agent of these divisive opportunities to attack the work of God. And so in John chapter 8, we have the accounts of the, uh, the Jewish authorities and leaders and their hatred for Christ Jesus. By John chapter 8 and the verse number 59, they have got what? Stones. Shimei casting stones. Now, I get the stones are not being cast for the same reason. These men believe that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. But you still get the parallel idea. Their hatred for the Lord is such that they're prepared to put him to death. So what's the cause of it? Well, verse number 44 tells us, Ye are of your father, the devil. The devil is at work in those who express such open opposition to Christ Jesus. And the same is true today. That those who openly hate the Lord and curse the Lord, they are of their father, the devil. And so the opposition continues. You see, you see it developed in the book of Acts then, turned again to Acts chapter 5. We saw Acts 5 with regards to Ananias and Sapphira. And Acts 5 again at a time when there is there's tremendous challenge upon the early work of God. Acts 5, verse number 17. Then the high priest rose up and all that were with him, which are the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with what? Indignation. There was this hatred and bile in their souls regarding the apostles, but not regarding the apostles, but regarding the name that they were teaching in. Verse 28. Did we not straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? Those Jewish authorities in the early days of Christ's ministry are then continuing on in their opposition to Christ so that they oppose the apostles as they preach in Christ's name. And so verse 18, they lay their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. That doesn't stop there. Against Saul, this Pharisee, the Pharisees, Acts chapter 8, was consenting unto Stephen's death. And what's he doing? He's breathing out threatenings against the church of God. And at that time, Acts 8.1, there was a great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem. There's all of this opposition to the Lord. It doesn't stop there. Acts chapter 19 and the verse number 9. You find the disruption here. Acts 19, verse number 9. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitudes. 
And there are those and their hearts are so against the Lord that they'll openly speak evil against the Christ of God. One last reference, Acts 21 and the verse number 30. And all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forth with the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill That's the opposition to Christ that exists. It exists in the days of David, the anointed of God. It exists in the days of Jesus himself. It exists in the days of the apostles. And it exists in the church, in the world today. It may not be directly on your doorstep, but it's not far off. And it's certainly in other nations of the world. Or to name the name of Christ is to bring upon yourself a sentence of death. There are simply two kingdoms in this world. And every one of you in this building, you're in part of one of those two kingdoms. The Lord himself says, you're either for Christ or you're against Christ. There's no neutrality. If Christ is not your Lord and Savior, then you're part of Satan's kingdom and you're against the Lord. You may not yet have got to the point where like Shimea, you will curse Christ and cast stones upon Christ. But Shimei's heart and your heart are exactly the same. You have no love for Christ. You have love for Saul, for Satan, for the kingdom of darkness. And may God have mercy and open your soul to the true kingdom of God. That's Shimei. Thirdly, there is this matter of insurrection in Absalom. And again, once more, turning back the second Samuel 16, we're seeing these devices the devil uses, again, to bring trouble upon the kingdom, deception, aggression, and thirdly, this matter of insurrection. Absalom is under Ahithophel's counsel. We'll come back the next Lord's Day, Lord willing, to Hushai and his rule in chapter 17. But for now, please just give attention to the counsel of Ahithophel. Verse number 20, give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines. Now here we've, we've got to appreciate what's happening, what's happening culturally here. Upon succession, it seemed to be the case that the king's court passed to his successor. The female court also passing in that regard, passing to the new king. We see it in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and the verse number 8 in the words of Nathan when he describes what God has done for David, I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom. Now, it does not necessarily mean that there were relations held in that context. It was simply the passing, if you like, of the king's court to the successor. That was part of the culture. But Ahithophel's counsel in that regard, verse number 21, is... Go in unto thy father's concubines. What Ahithophel says to Absalom is, you take the king's court for your own and do it in public and humiliate and embarrass the king. But what all of that involved was, it was Absalom saying, I'm king now. This is my house. This is my throne. And I now rule the land. And all of you need to see this publicly. 
And so whilst, of course, there is grotesque immorality involved here, the immorality is used as an agent to display the insurrection. The immorality is grotesque, yes. But the heart behind it is to display to the people, Absalom is now not ever going to go back. He's the king. Now, of course, in this situation, you've got to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you'll see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, in the verse number 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house. These are, of course, Nathan's words from the Lord against David for his sin. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of his son. This is all part of God's purpose in chastising David for his sin. That's the case. But again, as often the case, we see that as God does something, He does something through people who willingly act in wicked ways. And so what you see is the intent of Absalom's heart is revealed even at the same time as he's working under the sovereign purpose of God. Does that happen? Of course it does. The rulers, of course, took Christ as part of God's sovereign purpose. Their hearts hated Christ, but God was able to use that, and there's no difference here. But that's not our point for right now. What you're seeing here again is the nature of kingdom opposition. And the devil seeks to undermine the true Christ of God by seeking to establish his own kingdom. It is the kingdom of Antichrist. False religion, seeking to overthrow the true Christ of God, is one of the devil's devices. You see that, of course, in 1 John. Please turn to 1 John. And in 1 John, there's language regarding the children of the devil and the children of God. There's distinctions made between true and false in various ways. But in 1 John chapter 2, and the verse number 18, you see this. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Antichrist. And sometimes we think of the word anti as being against. The preposition itself has also the idea of in the place of, instead of, as a substitute to, The Antichrist religion is an attempt of the devil to usurp the rightful king, Christ himself. Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. You see that? That the Antichrist comes out of the true church of God. They're exposed. They will not be loyal to Christ. And they're promoting a false Christ, a false religion. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. Defection and disloyalty is an manifestation, again, of the devil's work. Verse 22, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Over in chapter 4, we see the same sort of language. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, 
because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist. We must not give any credence to any religion, no matter how sincere they may be, that will not bear testimony to the truth regarding the person and work of Christ. False teaching, sometimes with the name of Christianity attached to it, is the work of the devil. And it is an attempt to undermine the true kingdom of Christ. Truth matters. Discernment matters. And taking the time to recognize the two is vital if we are to see the work of God progressing. You see, the devil's intent is very, very simple. He allows all manner of false religions to be propagated, from the cults to the isms, even to the modern-day secular faith. I use that deliberately, secularism is a faith. And all of these false religions, the devil's intent is simple. To this world, be loyal to anything and to anyone but the true Christ. The only way of salvation and peace is being loyal to Jesus Christ. And the devil keeps people away from Christ by promoting all manner of false religions. And so the world rejects the truth to follow a lie or multiple lies or a manifestation of different lies. But it's all to keep the soul from Christ. But there are some of you here tonight and you're under the sound of God's word. And you're loyal to something but Christ Jesus. And you've embraced the spirit of Antichrist. May God give you a heart for the true Christ. Jesus. God manifest in the flesh. The true righteousness of God. Who lived in full obedience to the law of God. Died upon the Roman cross. Rose the third day. And even now reigns at the right hand of God. Very God and very man prophet, priest, and king, the only redeemer of God's elect, that is the Savior of God, chosen of God, the Savior of sinners. The devil will delight to oppose the kingdom through Zebas and Shimeis and Absaloms. He seeks to oppose the work of God. Do you not think we must be in prayer? Do you not think we're living in days when there is this ongoing hostility to the true kingdom of God. And so we see 2 Samuel 16, we see perspectives regarding the kingdom. And then very briefly, we see this also as being a matter of personal trouble to the king. You can't avoid reading this chapter and just feeling the personal pain that David must have underwent. We saw this in Psalm 3 and Last Lord's Day in Psalm 55. Remember Psalm 55? Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise because of the voice of my of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they cast iniquity upon me and in wrath they hate me. Shimei casting false iniquity upon David. He hears these things. Verse 4. My heart is sore pained within me. The agony, the personal sorrow here. There's future uncertainty. There's a leaving of home and family. There's the risk of illness and death. There's the public humiliation and the shame. 
and all at the hands of family and friends. So you see chapter 16, verse 14, they come weary. This is a time of personal sorrow, and there are certainly features that we can identify with. And so I want to turn your attention in closing back to verses 10 through to 12. Now, of course, there are difficult questions here. What should David have done? Was Abishai right? What was the right approach to this wicked man, Shimei? Well, David, I believe, is very mindful of sin at this time. I'm not sure we can commend all of his actions here. What we must understand is his heart. And in his heart, we see, at least in part, how we may also respond in times of personal agony. David is profoundly aware of his sin. And in such, he is humble before God in light of his sin. He understands his sin deserves this sorrow. He says in verse number 10, So let him curse Because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. I don't believe that David's implying here that God directly had spoken to Shimei and said, Go and curse David. The point that David is making here is that this cursing is under the sovereign control of God. He knows he sinned against the Lord. David knows that. He may not be guilty of the blood of the house of Saul, but he was certainly guilty of the blood of the house of Uriah. And he realizes that this affliction of Shimei is small compared to his son, which seeks his life in verse number 11. He knows he sinned against the Lord. Now, we may not live in sorrow due to some personal sin that we've committed. But we do all know that one sin is a shaking of the fist at God. And we have all shaken our fists in the face of God. And in light of that, we come to the realization that we must be humble in the sight of our sorrows, realizing that we deserve troubles and trials, and truth be told, we deserve more trouble and trial than we receive. God is merciful even in our trials. Shimei throws stones, but God spares David's life. You see, in our trouble, God is always doing his sanctifying work. And in our troubles, we must all be mindful that we are rebels against God. and We deserve nothing but God's wrath. So there is humility, but there's also hope in the king in light of God's mercy. Verse 12 is, again, one of those wonderful texts to take in times of affliction. It may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. The word affliction that's used there. There's a bit of a background story to some of the ways that's been translated and used over the years. Some readings have the idea of eyes, tears in the eyes. Other readings have the idea of iniquity. The Lord look upon my iniquity. Of course, all of these things are combined. For his affliction that brings tears is caused by his iniquity. And he's saying that the Lord may look on him in his iniquity, in his affliction, And in so doing that he may know the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God, that kindness that he does not deserve. 
And so the Lord may requite me good for his cursing this day. We must keep our eyes upon Jesus. We deserve nothing but wrath, but we understand the Lord's goodness because we see the Lord's goodness revealed in the coming of Christ Jesus into this world that he would give himself for our sins. And so though we may experience afflictions for a time, we can hope in the mercy of God. For God has shown himself to be faithful and true in the person of Christ Jesus for our souls. Humility and hope. That is the way to approach our afflictions. We deserve more and we can hope for mercy because God is a God abundant in loving kindness. The blood of Christ proves that. So, trouble for the king and the kingdom. I suppose at the end of it all, you come to the conclusion there's nothing new under the sun. These things come upon all of God's people. And we must keep our eyes upon the Lord. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. I don't know what your own needs are today or what the Lord may do in your life. But I trust this is according to the mind of God and that will be beneficial to you at this time. Heavenly Father, take your word, we pray. Bring it to bear upon our minds. We do confess, O Lord, again, the, the need that we have to pray for the welfare of the church of God. And we think of Revelation 12 and the devil persecuting the child in the wilderness. And we realize, O God, that we need the protection of Christ, our King. Guard us from the devil's every attacks. Help us, O Lord, to be protected and to press on in the things of God, despite the opposition of others. We pray, dear Father, on a personal level, that you'd help us to work through our own afflictions in a way that we would put our hope in God. We thank you, O Lord, for your mercies. That though, O God, you may afflict us for a season, your faithfulness and your mercy are new every morning. O Lord, bless us, we pray. Help us to walk humbly with thee. In Jesus' precious name, amen.